Hi, I'm Marian Evans from Elevate BC and welcome to the exclusively Elevate Business Podcast series. These episodes are our way of providing you with free insight and advice in your business journey. Throughout our second series, we'll be continuing on the journey of discussing a range of topics with successful business leaders and prolific media broadcasters. Welcome to Series 2, Episode 3. Last time, Sophie Howe, the Future Generations Commissioner for Wales, joined me to discuss what we can learn from the next generation. We were looking at great leadership lessons and reverse mentoring. In this episode, I'll be talking about exporting, expanding and seizing opportunities with Stephen Davis, the CEO of Penderin Distillery in Wales. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Please review us if you have time. So today we're going to be talking about exporting, expanding, seizing opportunities. We've had some great questions in from people already, so we're going to try and cover some of those off. Those of you who don't know me, probably best described as an entrepreneur. So I have my finger in a few different pies and owner of a, a few different businesses. And Elevate BC is one of those, a consultancy, which I use to provide business advice to leaders and businesses throughout Wales and beyond. Probably without further ado, I'll, I'll pass on to you, Steve. I'm sure you'll do better justice to uh, an introduction than I will. Okay, well, thanks, Marion. Yeah, and thank you for inviting me to, uh, to come and chat with you. Well, I've been running Penderin Distillery for 15 years now. Business had started before I, I got there and the whiskey was maturing. And, um, you know, some of the basic things had, had been done before I arrived. Came from the steel industry. I'd worked for 15 years in, in business to business services in the steel industry, which was, which was really good fun. It's funny, actually, people love talking about whiskey, but they never really were that interested when I was, when I was working in, in the steel business. Um, but, it, but, I, but I shared an, e- an equal passion for it. I'm from Port Albert, so I shared an equal passion for, for that business. But anyway, you know, yeah, with Penderin, um, it was a case of bringing back a tradition of making whiskey to Wales, which had been lost for 100 years. The guys who started the business have really had that in, in their mind. Uh, and But really, you know, with a lot of passion, but probably not an, not an awful lot of knowledge, which I'm sure they would, they would admit to. Uh, but we had a few key advantages, I suppose. You know, we had a, a type of whiskey still that had become available to us, which gave us a very unusual and unique spirit. So we weren't making something that the rest of the industry was making. So that, I could see that was going to be a really big advantage. And, and we also, you know, in, in conjunction with that, we had a designer by the name of Glenn Tetzel, who brought some, some fantastic, beautiful designs to the, to the table. Glenn was a Welshman from Barry, but had worked with all the top brands in the industry. So he was dying to work with a Welsh brand in, you know, in the discipline that uh, he'd worked in all his life. So he'd worked with Johnny Walker Black Label, he'd worked on Baileys and Talisker and he did, he did the Peroni designs, the new Peroni stuff that you see around. He worked on that. So it's incredible to work with someone like him on the design side of things and then to work with somebody on the whiskey, like Dr. Jim Swan, who was our sort of whiskey guru, who he came from Edinburgh. He's from Scotland because there hadn't been any whiskey in Wales for 100 years. So we had to find somebody who could help us to really navigate through because, you know, the, the remit that I had from the directors was we're going to make world-class whiskey. Forget about anything else. Unless we're going to do that, what's the point? But I think I remember most about when I first started with the business. Not long after I started, there was an American journalist came to visit. And uh, she loved the whiskey, but she went back to the States and uh, she wrote in a journal in New York, I can't quite believe this beautiful whiskey is made in a ratty shed in the Brecon Beacons. And I think that probably summed it up in those days. It was a tin shed. Full of maturing whiskey, you know, there was a lot of passion around the business and a lot of substance in those barrels. But then 
you know, we had to build a business around that. Yeah, yeah, and it's not a quick business, is it? I guess it's not something that comes overnight. No, it's not. I mean, legally, you're not allowed to, to, to label the product as whiskey unless it's three years and one day old, and then you can call it whiskey. So it's very cash intensive, you know, if you're going to build a stock of whiskey. And, and one of the challenges over the years has been trying to balance off sales with available whiskey, you know, yeah. trying to, you look at the, and, and, you know, after three years, you think, great, the whiskey's ready. Well, no, after three years, one barrel of whiskey is ready. So it's not enough to, so you really are talking about five years before yeah. you can, you know, seriously get going in terms of volume. And even then, you know, you maybe want to build a bit more age as, as you, as you go. So, uh, there's lots of uh, lots of challenges around that. How many bottles in a barrel then, uh, Stephen? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it depends on the size of the barrel, but um, typically a, a, a bourbon barrel would be about 200 litres and uh, or the wine barrels would buy about 225 litres. So depending on the strength you're going to you're going to bottle that at, you're talking about, you know, somewhere between 200 and 350 bottles in, in, a, in a barrel. Yeah. So you can actually buy a barrel. If you ever want to buy a barrel, if you're going to have 350 bottles at the end of it, presumably you'll have a lot of friends. That's, sure. that's Christmas sorted then. Yeah. <laughs> See you in a year's time. My gosh. And people do buy a barrel, do they? Sometimes people buy a barrel uh, because they want it for, you know, they'll buy a new, new make spirit and they're going to come and get it in five years' time or ten years' time. Or a, or a group of friends will, will get together and buy a barrel between them. It's it's about, if in total, it's about seven or £8,000 to buy a barrel but that in, a lot of that is tax and, and then you've got to obviously get it bottled and things the actual whiskey itself two to three thousand pounds so it's um but you but but once you bought the whiskey you're stuck with all the other costs then because you can't get it out of the warehouse until you pay the tax i don't know if people know but the average on a bottle of pendarin at, at a premium strength of 46 percent alcohol by volume the the duty is around about 10 pounds a bottle Really, very heavily taxed product. Yeah, Yeah, it is. I've got visions of groups of friends now buying barrels and just these little um, taps at the bottom. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure if that says much about my friends, really, but uh, that that is amazing. I know when you and I spoke, and I guess you know, really intrigued by all these little distilleries that keep kind of popping up everywhere, and that inference that it's easy. And certainly from speaking to you, gin and whiskey are very different products, aren't they? I mean, if you go back 15 years when I started at Pendarin, there, were, there weren't any other craft distilleries around in England or Wales. There just weren't any. Um, shortly after we started, there was the, the guys at the St. George's Distillery in Norfolk. They actually came to see us. They came in disguise one day. They didn't tell us who they were, which was a shame because we would have told them a lot more if they just said who they were. But they came and they were asking about what we'd been doing. But there weren't. There just weren't any craft distilleries around. And and as you say, gin is not a matured product, so it's a it's a lot easier to get it off the ground, I suppose. But whiskey is a much more long term proposition. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, you're 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 in a different different territory, really. But but even today now, I mean, it's interesting to see that around in England, you know, there are distilleries in the Lake District, in Yorkshire, in uh, the Cotswolds, and they are making whiskey and gin. Yeah. And they're relatively new projects, but yeah, it's a, it is a challenge. Uh, but there's a lot more people now who seem to be up for it and have the appetite to do it. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a bit of that almost that romantic thought of being able to build a distillery versus the the kind of head and and just as you were saying about thinking about the tax, thinking about bottling it, thinking about you know, there's a lot to it, isn't it? There? There's a lot to to yeah. remember. Yeah, I think if you're um, 
I think if you're in it, you're in it for the passion and for the achievement. And, and as you know, you're not in it because it's a, it's not a quick way to make a profit. You know, you know, hopefully what we're doing now is we're building a lot of value into the brand. It took us a long, took us about eight years to actually get into profit, which was something of a landmark. But, and, and, you know, we've been profitable and growing steadily now for seven or eight years. And one of the questions that had come in, Stephen, was, was there ever a breakthrough moment? Was there that turning point? And I guess making a profit. Yeah. I think from a whiskey point of view, I remember going to, we do a lot of shows, um, uh, Whiskey Live in London, Whiskey Live in Paris, Whiskey Fest in New York. It's, it sounds lovely, but you're, you're kind of on the road with these shows and talking and tasting all the time. I remember one day... Um, sounds horrendous. Sounds horrendous, Stephen. I mean, you know, it's, you don't understand how, how difficult it is. But, but um, <laughs> I remember being stood by the, the tasting table one day with Dr. Jim Swan, who was our whiskey guru, and a guy who was a very, very senior guy in the Scotch whiskey industry came along and said, well, come on then, Jim. You know, he didn't know me, but come on, Jim, let, let's taste this Welsh whiskey that you've been doing, and let's see what it's like. So we poured him a little glass of whiskey and then he said, can I have a few drops of water? Because when you drink malt whiskey, you normally either drink it neat or you drink it with, you open it up with water. And we said to him, no, don't, don't put any water in it. Just, just take the whiskey and have a sip and then we'll add some water for you later. So he sat and we were, we were chatting and he was sipping. And a couple of minutes later, he looked down and he said, oh my goodness, there's no whiskey left in my glass to add the water to. And Dr. Swan, I would blender gave me that knowing look and he said we've got him you know we've got him and and that was the sort of thing that really indicated that people would because you know it's difficult it's a difficult thing for um people to accept a welsh whiskey when they've been drinking scotch for so many years or irish or bourbon which are all very well established so the idea that somebody who was kind of an expert in the industry would enjoy it without thinking too much about it was quite good i thought it was quite a nice yeah yeah never forgot that yeah, satisfaction, knowing that you had a quality project that people were starting to accept in the in the market. Yes. The exporting side of things. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's lots of brands who would love to be able to export, wouldn't really know how to go about it. And it's not easy to export liquor, is it? Alcohol doesn't cross boundaries easily because of the duty regimes all being different in different countries. And this is something sometimes consumers don't understand. Yeah. You know, so a consumer in America would say, I, I can't get Merlin cream liqueur, one of our, our other products in America. Yeah. And they'd have no concept of how difficult it is to actually just get it to market. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things. But, but having said that, uh, certainly for malt whiskey, it is an export type of product. If you talk to distilleries in Scotland, you know, a lot of them will say they're exporting 80% of their output. that It goes abroad into different markets. Yeah. And the big markets abroad for malt whiskey are France, which is a very sophisticated market. Uh, Germany is good for us. America, the USA is very good for malt whiskey. And then places you wouldn't expect like Taiwan, which is that they love Scotch whiskey in Taiwan and they're really sophisticated about it. You know, whereas somewhere like China would not be, wouldn't have the knowledge at this stage on, on malt whiskey, you know, so they wouldn't know. So, so you really need to know your, you know, where you're going and, and your market and, and building up that knowledge obviously takes, takes a bit of time, you know, knowing the procedures and, and working with people who can import whiskey into, into the countries. You know, you need to work with good local people, I think, who, who, yeah. who know, know what they're doing. Yeah, and understand the, understand the market. And so you've got quite a few different varieties. Look, I'm showing my, my ignorance now. You've expanded into quite a few different, different areas and some signature ones. And so, yeah, so we start with um, what, what we describe as our dragon range, which is 
a series of there and they're all single malts okay so in the whiskey world you have blended whiskies which tend to be a mixture of malt whiskey and grain whiskies but these are all made just from one in, one real ingredient which is barley um it's barley and water and, that, and that's it so this this range of whiskies bottled at 41 percent alcohol by volume and, and the nice thing about all our whiskies is, is they're all natural color so when the spirit comes off the stills uh, it's clear and then all of the color you get in these products comes from the wood maturation so whatever barrels they've been in oh, wow. uh, so this is our dragon range which is pandarin legend uh, pandarin myth and kelt legend and myth are both quite fruity creamy whiskies whereas the kelt is a slightly smoky whiskey not not as smoky as a scottish isla whiskey where they, they're known for being quite heavily smoked or peated and, and a bit medicinal that was much, much lighter than that. Uh, no, we're not, trying to, we're not trying to copy that kind of style at all. So this would be the sort of a um, basic range, if you like. I mean, all of these whiskies have won a lot of awards. You know, they're quite light at 41%. Um, they're very easy to drink, and you would drink them neat. I mean, you can add a few drops of water to them, but you really don't, you really don't need to. And then to supplement that, you know, I suppose the sort of more premium range would be our gold range. Well, we, and we use the analogy of Welsh gold. You know, Welsh gold, as you know, is very rare and precious. It's not mined anymore. Uh, and Ayr Camry, um, our Welsh gold, you know, when we started working, it was one, we made one barrel of whiskey a day. So we love that analogy of being very rare and precious. And these bottles were, were developed by, by Glenn Tetzel, bespoke for us uh, with the glass wings. And on the side of the bottle, you've got some Welsh cues. You've got the, the harp, the dragon, and the Prince of Wales feathers. So a nice presentation. You know, it's all about being premium and about drawing people in. And, and a lot of mod whiskey is bought as gifts. So this, this sort of range is ideal as gifts. So, and then if you go to the top of you know, what we do, just to give you the idea, single cask whiskies are probably the best example of what any distillery produces. So you take one cask and you bottle it on its own rather than marrying it with, with other casks. Lovely one for Whiskey Live in Paris last year, which actually sold out before I got to the show. I went for day three of the show, which is a trade show. They'd all gone. And they were, they were so enthusiastic about it. A couple for the States. And then we've got one in Harrods. I think we've got three actually in Harrods at the moment. And one of them was selling for about £600 a bottle. Very premium. And the, and the, and, and the buyer from Harrods will come and choose his own. You know, you want take my recommendation or our blender, he will, he will say, no, I want to choose my own. So he'll take, he'll take the time, he'll come to the warehouse and, and go through the whiskey. So it's, it's a very individual thing when you get to that sort of, that sort of level. What's your favourite? Which was your favourite, Stephen, of all the, of all the whiskies? I mean, I, I, I started um, with whiskey when I was, um, my dad introduced me to whiskey when I was probably 17 or 18 years old, and he introduced me to things like the Macallan, which is a very heavily sherried whiskey. Um, and uh, Highland Park, things which I think are really elegant whiskies. But out of our range, um, I would say the Madeira finish, which is what our house style is probably my favourite because it is so unusual um, and, and it's very definitely different from anything else on the market. I mean, you do see other, other distilleries will use Madeira casks occasionally. Yeah. And up until, well, probably about eight years ago, Glen Morangy used to do a Madeira finished whisky, but they don't do it anymore because it's very difficult to get the barrels. So our Madeira finish holds a bit of a unique position. Got an incredibly um, fruity, creamy nose on it. You know, when you pick it up, you can't mistake it for anything else. So I think that probably the Madeira finish would be the one I would always, if you're going to start with Pandera, and that's where you start. But then if you explore through the range, then there's lots of uh, smoky or fruity. And then if I, if I wasn't going to drink the Madeira finish, I'd go for something very jammy and quite heavy on the fruit, like the port, we have a port cask, uh, port and chewed. Uh, which takes a bit longer to achieve 
but that's very very nice as well so i mean you've got plenty of choice you know if you don't like one thing you can try another and uh, it's nice to give people a choice yeah absolutely and once you've got a great product and a great brand and this this goes i suppose for anything isn't it it's thinking then about how you can expand the range to give people that choice what would be a top tip for generating new business opportunities that would be applicable to any line of work? And I suppose that touches on that, doesn't it? Expanding the range, knowing what you're good at. Well, in our business, the way that we've got out and, and got new business is, is by just getting out there and yeah. talking, and in our case, tasting and letting people experience the brand. Before you go out and do that, you've got to have something that's going to be relevant, that's going to be good. You've got to do your research. I think you've got to work with good people to produce yeah. a brand that 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 is going to have a point of difference. Yeah. But what we found always, because you know, we we look like now a very, I mean, in in Welsh terms, we look like a fairly big and successful brand. But in whiskey terms, we're still very small to medium size, yeah. and we we don't have the marketing budgets of of the the Glenfiddichs or the Glenmorangies, you know, those sort of sort of brands. So it's all been about getting up and just putting energy into the effort of doing it. And, and obviously showing a lot of passion, which comes naturally with this, this kind of product, I suppose. Um, but but it, you just getting out there, doing it, and, and really um, meeting people and listening to what customers have got to say to you uh, yeah. about, about your brand. And I find if I don't go and do shows or, or events from time to time, it, and then you go back and do it, you suddenly think, ah, I've missed this. You know, I, I've missed not having that connection. And it's when you're a small brand, you've got to have that connection. The other thing I would say, which is a good tip, that the bigger brands in our industry don't do, you've got to keep refreshing what you do. I mean, if you're Johnny Walker Black Label, you, you tweak the brand a little bit every five years, or you, you maybe bring out some extended, as they've done, premium editions. But when you're a small distillery, you've got to keep the interest going. So we have a range of whiskies called Icons of Wales, where we tell stories. We tell stories about Dylan Thomas from Wales. We tell stories about Sir Bryn Terraville or Sir Gareth yeah. Edwards or yeah. the latest one is Rhiannon from the Mabinogion. And I know talking to some of the bigger brands, they don't get it. Why are you doing all these different things? Because there's always a demand in the marketplace for what's new. What have you got? Something a bit special, something a bit limited. It's really important to keep being relevant and keep refreshing what you're doing. When I first saw the um, bottle, I don't know if you've got a, got a picture of it. And if someone's listening to this on a podcast, I definitely encourage you to go and go and have a look at this. It was the Bryn Terravel bottle, which is like a velvet. It's like red velvet. It's just wow, isn't it? There's a real wow factor to that. And as you say, it's a premium product. It's different. To... So that's that's the Bryn Terravel there. That's beautiful. And the workmanship that goes goes into that, it is something special, isn't it? it, it it's Yeah, it's different. It's... When you do something like this, it's, it's really interesting. First of all, obviously, the design concept is, as you say, it's beautiful. It really does look good. And I'm so pleased to be able to work with, with something like this. But when you when you come down to it, you look at it. And actually, to, to get to make that happen, the picture of Bryn on the front of the box there is in his signature part of Falstaff in the Verdi Opera. And that picture is actually, that image is off a Deutsche Grammophon record, right? So we had to go to Deutsche Grammophon and ask for their permission to use it. And, and pay a royalty. Then we had to go to the photographer who'd taken the picture and do the same. And then we had to go to the costume designer. And, and you've got to think of all of these things before you can put this together. So it's it's kind of, you know, make sure that once it goes out there, nobody's going to be upset or yeah. going to have any issues. Um, but, it, but it really does. I mean, that sort of, that sort of presentation is not a, not a usual presentation for Malt Whiskey. And it does make people think and it does attract people to, yeah. you know, to the... And interestingly, because I don't know if you... Obviously, the Far East is quite important to us in terms of as a market. And a lot of the spirits in China, what they call Baiju, tend to come in red and gold packaging like that. Yeah. 
Whenever I talk to the guys in that part of the world, they say, oh, you did this specially for us because it's it's almost like traditional packaging. Of course, we didn't, but I'm very happy that they um, that they like it. That's interesting as well, isn't it? And that's, that's again, you know, back to your point about when you're exporting, it's knowing the kind of markets you're, you're exporting into and you might just hit on something that's quite attractive in different parts of the world, I think. And when you're looking at this, you're almost sort of looking at a, an audience that, that would know Sabrin, who, I mean, he likes malt whiskey. He's, you know, he's in a, a, I think he's a connoisseur. He appreciates whiskey. And uh, to work with someone like that uh, and to be able to then reach a, a segment of an audience that we probably wouldn't have done with a rugby edition or with, you know, we have a music book prize, which is for pop, popular music. But you just reach a different segment of the audience. So this is the latest, the design of Rhiannon. Uh, and the, the illustration was done by an artist called Andrew Davidson. Um, and it's, you know, the whiskey in this bottle, by the way, like the Brin Terreville, it's, it's, it's award-winning and it's, it's wonderful. But it's that combination of things that, that really brings it to people's attention. And um, a tale from, from the Mabinogion, taking some Welsh identity with us around the world, you know, to most places, you know, rule of thumb, if they don't play rugby, they've never heard of Wales. That's, the, that's my rule of thumb. <laughs> <laughs> so you see, I was in a whiskey fest show in New York and a guy came up to me and said, I'd like to try your scotch. I said, yeah, I'd love you to try it, but it's not scotch, it's from Wales. And he generally looked at me and said, but that's an island off Scotland, isn't it? So I pulled the map up from under the table and I'm saying, no, 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 you know, ah, gee, I don't care, it's a great scotch. <laughs> okay. that's, that's a challenge. Yeah, it is to overcome, educate the market and to, to overcome. But I think I think it's it's something that I see time and time again with branding and with good sales and good companies is that they um it's that story people want yeah. to know is that authenticity that genuine passion behind it and people buy from people don't they Stephen I mean it, oh, it, they it, yeah. you know it sounds like a bit of a cliche but certainly and I, I think I mentioned this to you before the older I get the more I like working with people I like working with really and and people who get it and value that, that relationship really I, I know when I, when I joined Pender and people looked at me and thought he doesn't know anything about branding this guy's been selling business to business services albeit they were quite complicated they were they were some of them were 10-year contracts with lots of different terms and conditions or they'd be a one-year three-year five-year with lots of elements in it um, but the key thing about that business was it was about relationships and it was about performing well, giving good service and about relationships. So coming into a branded business, I had a lot to learn about branding, but the, all the stuff that goes around in terms of making relationships with the buyers in, in Tesco or in Sainsbury's or in Harrods or whatever, that's not that much different. So the, yeah, well, there was a lot to learn, but you, you have those basic skills. I, I, I'm not a believer that you can put any manager in any business and it works. That that doesn't. That's not right. But I think you can. There are transferable skills. I, I agree. It's the relationships, but also um, the work ethic. You yes. know, it doesn't come overnight. You, you've got to be quite tenacious in business. I mean, you've got to you've got to stick yeah. with it. Yeah. I mean, I, I I remember one day I was in Cardiff and and this was about I was three years into my career with Pendera, and if you can call it a career. The phone rang and it was our financial director. And he said, I've got some bad news here. He said, we're £50,000 short of cash this month. And I, and I thought this had happened quite regularly before. And I thought, oh, here we are again. This is a real struggle. What are we going to do? I put the phone down and I just remember sitting there. It was like Christmas time and there were Christmas shoppers all walking around. And you suddenly feel a bit lonely. You know, you sat there thinking, what, what am I going to do now? I got to talk to our main shareholder, talk to the shareholder. And he rang me back and said, I made a mistake. It's not 50, it's 100. And, and at that point, you know, you, 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 what are you going to do? You either give up or you say, right, okay, let's sort it out. What are we going to do? Let's find the reasons. Let's go through it. And, that's, and I found myself in the early years of the business when we were, we'd have a good month and we'd do well, and then we'd have two bad months and we wouldn't do well. 
you spend a lot of time explaining what you're doing, a lot of time really explaining what's happening in the business to the people who matter, yeah. whoever the shareholders or stakeholders are. Yeah. And uh, and now I don't have to do that so much now because we yeah. you know, people don't because when when the business is running well, you don't have to people don't worry about that that detail. No. Um, but certainly in those days, I remember the bank manager coming in and saying, "So tell me, Steve, you know when is it a good time to sell malt whiskey?" It was it was that difficult, you know. Oh. We, we were we were in yeah we would we would be in, in the equivalent of intensive care with the bank. So you can look at us now and say, "Oh gosh, the brand looks wonderful, it looks lovely." But there were some very hard times, I can promise you. And without that determination to keep going and get through it, yeah. um, we, we wouldn't have been here. The business would have gone. And that takes that takes a. Um, um quite a lot of grit and, and as you say determination and yeah. actually we learn as much don't we from I suppose the bad years or the, the failures or the things going wrong it's the tragedies when you don't do something about it when you when you can't see through to the, the kind of next stage or, or get the help or talk to the people that, that matter you know it can be quite isolating can't it when things aren't going your way yeah you've got to have a belief haven't you you've got to believe in the product or service that you've got and you've got to believe that it's going to fit in and it and it works and people will ultimately see that. But in those days when you're just building that credibility and building the awareness, you know, sometimes you, you in a quiet moment, you'll think, you know, is this really going to work? I get I get quite a few clients coming to me with that thinking, oh, my gosh, what, what am I doing? What do you predict with your with your glass ball now? What do you predict of the biggest future growth market post Brexit? That's tricky, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, my first, my first concern about Brexit is to make sure that our existing markets within Europe continue to a level which is, you know, commensurate with where we are now, uh, because France and Germany, in particular, are very important market. Well, all of the Euro- European countries are, but those in particular. Yeah. And and we don't know at the moment. We don't know exactly what the arrangements are going to be. And I think that's pretty pretty poor, you know. But then when you look outside of Europe, we're already exporting to sort of 40 countries in total and quite a few places outside of Europe. So my, my general view is that, you know, as long as you know the rules um, of exporting, then it should be fine. But will we get any advantage, any places outside of Europe after we leave? Well, the sort of place for something like Pandaren would be somewhere like India, where there's a, an awful lot of whiskey drunk, although it's fairly low quality. But the opportunity for... Um, aspiring classes within the, the you know the Indian market because they have they they do gravitate to our sort of product. Yeah. But at the moment, there's very high tariffs. So it's 180 percent import tariff on our sort of product going into India. Yeah. So a free trade agreement with someone like India would would make a difference to our industry. Um, but how long that would take to negotiate is, I think, very yeah. you know, a question. I don't know. Somewhere like Japan, with the, the agreement that was made with Japan recently. Didn't make a lot of difference to us because we're already we're already importing and uh, exporting to Japan and doing okay. But what it does do, it stops them putting tariffs on the products in the future. I'm not sure there's going to be a wonderful new world immediately. I think it's going to take quite a while to to evolve. Probably. I think you're probably right, and I think when I look at some of the businesses we we work with and and some of the things that I'm involved with, it it, it really brings home to me the benefit of a diversified kind of portfolio so you haven't got all your eggs in one basket it's not all in all in export or it's not all in one country or or what have you and also the need to be agile and adapt so you you can you can try and forecast you can try and preempt what will happen with things but there's no substitute for being able to adapt to change because change there's things happening all the time I mean, brexit's the next thing isn't it but we've had covid there's there's always something that's hitting hitting business so i think being yeah. quite agile is, is important as well 
Yeah, I think, you know, in, in terms of the, the pandemic, I mean, we, we were very fortunate because ultimately what's happened for us is we've got a lot of customers in the UK who are continuing trading. So we've come through, you know, reasonably well. But at the height of things, when, you know, the supermarkets weren't really ordering a lot of other than they were looking for toilet rolls and soap and all the basic stuff, yeah. um, we turned our hand to making hand sanitizer, which was in very short supply there. And I can tell you, making hand sanitizer from malt whiskey is an expensive hobby. I mean, it's not something you would want to do, although it does smell really nice. It does smell nice. But, but, but the NHS couldn't get it anywhere. They couldn't get it anywhere. So we were very happy to sort of do that, and it helped them, and it helped us, and we gave some to charity, which was good. So we were quite agile with that, I think. You know, I'm very proud of the team, and I always tell people that Pendarin is very much a team effort. You know, it's, yeah. it's about we've got some great – investors we've got great people around us inside and outside the business who really work for us and we're able to turn this thing around and which we're still selling a hand sanitizer that was quite that's quite good but but in terms of the long term for the business broadening the business more into tourism as well as manufacturing and brands is something that we're really keen to do and, and i think you might you know you need although at the moment i mean moving into tourism doesn't seem like a bright idea as we sit here today uh, you know, uh, we need to have a word with Mr. Drakeford about that. But, um, but, but I mean, for the longer term, you've got to hope that uh, when when things settle down, and and uh, so that's what we're doing. So, so we're looking at building two new distilleries over the next couple of years, and the first one in Llandidno. And I was in Llandidno last week, and it's so exciting. You know, we've got a building up there which is just wonderful. So that'll be opening March or April next year. What a great story, though, and especially given so much doom and gloom that's out there in terms of businesses at the moment and, and areas across the country to be investing five million um, in that in that area, giving people another reason to come and visit when things are a bit bit more back to back to normal. Yep. Which hopefully they, they will get there, but I think. Um, it almost bucks the trends, doesn't it, Stephen, of, of what we're hearing in the markets at the moment. And, and it's good to have a good news story and investment going going in and a longer-term strategy, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I hope so. And it, yeah, and it is very much, I mean, this has been in the planning for quite a few years. We've got support, uh, including some, some some grant support from the Welsh Government as well, which is which has been really helpful. Yeah. Um, but but it, And it's part of a long-term strategy. Uh, we're still able to keep the project going through the pandemic and the people are working on site and uh, we're more or less on programme. Um, but I'm just hoping that by the time we get to March and April, the things will have opened up, or certainly by June anyway, you know, that we can get the yeah. summer season in. But but uh, as I say, talking to a lot of the, tra- the attractions at the moment, they've had a desperate year. So it's we needed to change for the economy and for, for everyone. Yeah, agree. But one of the things that you've done to kind of adapt, I guess, to the fact that people can't come and do their usual tour of the distillery or, or, or tasting is you'd be doing virtual tasting. Yeah sessions yeah. haven't you tell us a bit yeah. more about about that it's, yeah it's great i mean so we started off by doing the pendering gold series of whiskies so we do a session which is just on tasting people through our madeira finish our portwood sherry wood uh, we have a rich oak version and a lightly peated whiskies so there's five whiskies and when we do these things in, in in the uk we send out a little sample bottles a set of samples to go with it and then we talk and taste as we are doing now, but, you know, with a, some slides and a, and a chat and let people discover the whiskies in their own home for themselves in, in, in their own comfort. I mean, we do masterclasses in, in, in normal times at the distillery and we, we go out and do them in the market as well. But, but it works really well, actually, to do it when people are at home. We try and set them up to make sure they've got the right kind of glassware and some still water 
and you know don't cook triple cup chips before you're going to nose whiskey because you won't smell anything you know, I've, done, I've done that in, a, in, in places in the past and all of a sudden the, sm- the smell has come through from the kitch- kitchen in the restaurant or whatever and it just kills it it's all about the aromas with single malt it's all the experience is very much about the aromas as well as the taste it's not a binge drink by any means you know you nose and you taste and you sip if you if you've got a good whiskey in the glass you need 20 minutes to really um, enjoy it pour it in the glass let it sit let it just breathe with the air you know acclimatize to the temperature and then it changes it changes through that time yeah we don't probably have quite enough time because we're doing five whiskeys over about 90 minutes but it but people love it it's good yeah I, I think um, I think you're probably going to get a rush of people now going onto the website saying I'm going to book on it sounds like a perfect way to socialize before Christmas actually we're doing whiskey and we're doing whiskey and rum at the moment because we've launched a new rum brand which has got a got a good story uh, Siddiqui rum uh, it hasn't got a Welsh story but it's got a very good good interesting background so we're doing those and then we're not doing any gin at the moment but after Christmas we'll probably do some gin classes but uh, so it's whiskey or whiskey and rum just now how should businesses best promote themselves in in 2021 and I think mm-hmm. certainly from speaking to you this morning Stephen and, and from my own experience I think there is a lot to be said for aligning your brand with your kind of values the story yeah. behind it that kind of genuine being authentic, really. That, that that branding is the strongest branding. That's the one that sticks in, in my experience. Lots of the work that comes our way at Elevate is word of mouth. People experience it and then they keep coming back and they tell their friends or they tell their, their colleagues about it. And, and for me, branding is about that, having that core message to, to give you this consistent, high quality. Um, I don't know if there's anything you'd, you'd add to that. Yeah, um, I think... Um... I think, yeah, you've got to have very clear brand messages that you do keep repeating and you do keep uh, the market knows what you stand for. And when people discover you, I mean, um, whiskey, single malt whiskey is a discovery brand and you want someone to say, well, guess what I've got? Or you won't believe I've got a whiskey that you never heard of. I want to tell you all about it. Now, I mean, I did um, an event with with the Manchester Whiskey Club a little while back. And when I got there, I didn't know what to expect. There was nobody over the age of 35. They were all pretty young, young, young group. And they all knew, they all knew my brand story. They didn't really come to hear. They knew the basics, but they wanted a few extra details. They wanted to know what shape the stills are or how many plates are in the second still. They wanted to know details that frankly, I don't know why they, but, but this is malt whiskey. This is all about You've got to be consistent. You've got to be able to convey um, those messages to people. You've got to harness that, that passion that people have. You know, you, you can't say to them, I can't, tell, I can't tell you that. That's a trade secret. I'm not telling you that. You've got to try and really ha- harness um, people's enthusiasm. And we do that um, in these difficult times. We're doing a lot of that online, not just through virtual tastings. I do, I do a lot of tastings now, um, not tastings, but training with America. With got my, my guys getting up at two in the morning, um, to train people in California or, or to do stuff, um, you know, late evening in New York. And, and it's a lot of communication. It's just a lot of brand communication and being able to hopefully wow them with the designs, excite them with the designs yeah. and, and give them the detail about why, you know, why is this brand different? Why isn't it? It's not a scotch and it's not, it's not even trying to be a scotch. It occupies somewhere on, on the side of scotch, which is, which is a different territory that you've never explored before. Is that education? Yeah, and we do. I mean, social media, we do a lot on social media. We don't, you know, I think we could do more. I think we should do a lot more in the digital realm, market and sell ourselves um, at the next level, you know, to take another step up, really. 
you can't do everything. You can't be great at everything. And it's about finding individuals, teams, people who have have those strengths and can bring that and share your kind of passion for for things. And, and certainly when I think about how we've shifted as a business to go more virtually because we've, we've kind of had to, David, who, who who's kind of sitting behind the scenes on, on this, has been instrumental to that with me because he gets it, because he gets the branding, gets the business ethos and can bring it together. And it, it's it's essential, really. I've been asked what my plans are for Stefan Castle. Lots of plans. And the more I speak to Stephen, the more I get to know Stephen, the more I'm thinking we need to do something with Penderian at Bethlehem Stefan Castle, whether that's a massive tasting session or, or, or what, I'm not sure. But like yourself, Stephen, I'm a great one for going for different opportunities and keeping my, my eyes open. And so when there's opportunities to collaborate or someone comes to me with a great idea, I'm always open to, to suggestions on it. And that's very often how things have developed with me over, over the years. So I think Stefan Castle, there's lots of things on the way. So there's quite a few different phases that we're, that we're working on now. So I won't give too much away uh, too soon, but uh, expect some whiskey there at some point. Is there any opportunity you wish you'd seized earlier than you did? I'm my own worst critic. So I always think oh, I could have done this faster. Or I could have gone for that. I don't think I've got any regrets. I don't know about you, you Stephen. I don't suppose I have any regrets. I, I, other than I regret probably not knowing. I learned a lot of stuff along the way that if I'd known perhaps a bit earlier, I would have employed in terms yeah. of, um, you know, doing things, in terms of exports, you know, in terms of how, how, to, how to invest in export markets. I mean, the problem was in the early days, we didn't have any money to invest in export markets anyway. But um, by the time we... We got to that point. I would have liked perhaps a bit more knowledge of where to usefully employ. Going back a few, quite a few years, I'd literally been with the company five minutes, and the opportunity came up to make some television ads in the in the UK and Wales to do some TV ads, not for our whiskey, funny enough, because we didn't have enough whiskey to, but for our gin, vodka, and cream liqueur. And it was a couple of guys, Welsh guys, who were in an ad agency in in, in Edinburgh. And, and I'd, I'd been in the business five minutes and there was an enthusiasm around me for doing this stuff. And I really, I didn't know. I had no idea. I, I had no idea how expensive that it was to, to make in those days TV ads. And, and, and they just, for our kind of brand, it was totally inappropriate. And we made these three ads and Rob Brydon did the voiceover for us on them. They were very nice. But they, they, they didn't cost a lot to make, but the airtime air cost a fortune. And all of a sudden, the brand sold for the, the, the period that they were on the TV. And then they came off the TV because we couldn't afford to do anymore. And then the sales just dipped. And I got to the end of the year and thought, what on earth did we do that for? You know that. And so you learn that things for us, TV and radio doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I learned that the hard way. And I even look back to that year now and look at the account. I can't even look at the accounts because the losses in the accounts were so horrible because of it. And I wish I'd known. I wish I'd been strong enough to be able to say, hang on, guys. But I didn't know. I didn't know any different. So, you, you know, you learn from experience and you know, yeah. you see those. And you see it's really difficult to know in our kind of business when to say yes and no things especially when the brand becomes very popular and that's quite quite difficult i think i think you learn a lot uh, just just from what you do in in, in your work and then the, obviously the trick is not not to repeat that again absolutely I, and, and i think it's not getting too disheartened when there are setbacks trying to look past those because you know you, you, it's the yeah. easiest thing is kind of to give up isn't it and to, and to write, write it off 
were there any plans to do more of the green turvel red velvet one and it sounds like yes you probably will do more of that well that yeah that one is sold out at the moment with the problem of with doing that one doing actually repeating more of that is that we haven't got the whiskey the, the actual style of whiskey in, in barrel we just haven't got it but in terms of I sort of the Rhiannon um is it's a new one in that we've got another one called Royal Welsh which celebrates the last whiskey distillery before Penderyn in bottle form it's kind of a uh, celebrates that distillery so the answer is yeah we've got a series of whiskies and we'll be looking at innovative designs and and keep trying to move that concept forward which is just going to be part of what we do in the future there is a whiskey writer by the name of Jim Murray writes a book called the whiskey bible and he's just got into terrible trouble for comparing drinking our whiskey actually and a few other whiskies to to making love and having sex and this kind of thing and the industry it's been a real storm in the industry over the last few weeks I mean our our distilling team we all our blenders and distillers are ladies they are in position because they have the best noses for the job but they get a lot of attention for being a female distilling team which which I is nice in a way but it's also a bit of a shows that things haven't moved on as much as we would like you know so all the all the the distillers are are women they are yes um we we've, we've got um a distillery manager who's uh, Laura uh, and then we've got Ister who's the blender who does all puts all the batches together and Bethan who blends and distills with them and they learned they they had a wonderful apprenticeship with Dr Jim Swan over about 6 years but they got the job because we we had the interviews when you come for an interview at Pendaren you have to put your nose in lots of different pots and smell things and 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 we assess your ability to nose and taste so they scored absolutely top marks i mean they were they were high flyers in terms of um and it just turned out they were all ladies i mean it, they were the best people for the job but they do get that you know oh pendelin's got this female distilling team and of course when jim mary wrote these comments some people felt they were directed towards our team our team didn't take offense they didn't see it in the same way but i mean i think you you know i think the topic is is one that needs you know more yeah. and and it needs more, you know it doesn't need more action because 15 years ago people said oh it's unusual that pendelin have got a female distiller And, and 15 years on, they're still saying it's unusual, and that's not right because there's a lot of ladies in our in in, in our industry. So, and it shouldn't make a difference, should it? It, it shouldn't yeah. be a thing. No, I completely agree with you. Yeah, we're looking forward to tackling that uh, that that topic. We think we've moved on so much, and actually, in some in some cases, we haven't. Massive thank you, Stephen. Been an absolute pleasure. Could have talked to you all day. No, I, I know, and learnt loads. So thank you for giving up your time. I really do appreciate it. Uh, absolute pleasure. Nice, nice to see you. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. I really appreciate it. Really, thank you. Take care, everybody. Yeah, bye bye now. Thank you for listening to episode three of series two. On the next episode, I'll be talking to Lucy Cohen, the co-founder of pioneering accountancy practice Mazuma, where we'll be discussing gender. Is it still an issue, and how far have we really come? We really hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast today. And if you do have time, we'd love you to leave a podcast review. Thanks so much. If you'd like to get in touch, please visit our website, elevatebc.co.uk.